Would you join with me in prayer? Dear Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you for your word that just never changes. I thank you for your spirit who never changes. I thank you for your love for us which never changes. Lord, I thank you that in an inconstant world, you are constant and constantly good. So I pray that you fill us with your Holy Spirit. Open your word up to us even as as we open our hearts up to your word. Fill us, Lord, and lead us in Jesus' name. Amen. So for the past couple of weeks, we've been doing lit reviews, literature reviews. We, We did a series of verses about why Jesus came, where the Bible specifically talked about that. We looked at a series of sections in the Bible where Jesus specifically said, I am fill in the blank. We did a lit review about a series of sections of the Bible specifically talking about the importance of loving one another. We're going to do one more. One more this week, and it's a patch of lettuces. In Hebrews 10, feel free to go there. In Hebrews 10, verses 22 through 25, you get a series of your Bible. If you're looking at your Bible, you'll see a series of five let us statements in succession. Let us do X. Let us not do Y. And I I think we covered this at a huge chunk uh, like about a decade ago. So I'm I'm only going to skim across the lit review of this as opposed to going into massive detail. But just just as a reminder, um, do you know what the Greek word is for let us? There there isn't one. It's, It's not a Greek word. It's not that. Let us is an English way of expressing a specific kind of imperative statement. In fact, for those of you who like grammar, it's specifically called the cohortative mood. And Nikki is like, I can go home now. But anyway, the cohortative mood, which is basically just giving a command and saying this is a command, but something we all of us have to do together. I'm including myself in it and saying this is, it's not just a you go do this. And it's not just a, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. It's like, no, it's a command for all of us to do. Now, I say that because I don't want you thinking that the lettuce patch that we're discussing here is actually using the same word over and over. You know, we talked about that with the I am's. It's the same word. We talked about that with the love one another. That's the same words. This is not. But it's the same concept being expressed over and over about these community commands. But I also, I don't want you to confuse let us with being a mild command. Like, well, why don't we? It's not passive. It's saying, no, no, we need to be doing this. We all need to be doing this. And anytime in the Bible where a biblical writer sums up a section with multiple parallel imperatives in a row, I think we should probably maybe, maybe look at that. I think that's probably worthwhile looking at. So hopefully by now you're at Hebrews chapter 10. You know what, before I get to Hebrews chapter 10, let me just, give me two seconds. Remember, Hebrews is not a letter. It's not a narrative. It's a sermon, right? It's being written by a preacher. And it's a really good sermon. And it's written to Christians, but he's reminding them of what it was when we as followers of God were just the Hebrews, even by the time he wrote this in the first century, Hebrews is an old-fashioned word. It's like when you know, Abraham Lincoln's doing the four score and seven years ago. You go, is that the way they talked in the 1860s? No, not really. 
The writer starts a sermon in Hebrews 1.1. He says, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. There's a difference. Before we had all these mediators. But now it's what we're getting, we're getting directly from God. From the very first two verses of the book, the writer goes, Yeah, this is this is new. This is different. We're in a different place. And as awesome as it was for us to be Hebrews, following God out in the wilderness, Hebrews led out of Egypt, as awesome as that was as people of God, this is so much better to be Christians because we're not just looking for a pillar of fire or smoke and going, oh, it's over there. God's within us. We have a relationship. This is something different. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, that's one of the reasons I even go into it. So we remember that this whole book is about saying, praise God. Well, and because I want to remind us, we have a tendency as a species to kind of enjoy the good old days. Ah, the good old days. Back when everything was Mayberry. And you go, well, and uh, Jim Crow laws, and... um, Polio, and we used to boil everything. So, I mean, it was not necessarily the good old days. And if you take the good old days back far enough, you go, and the bubonic plague killed a third of Europe. Good old days. No, there's always been problems. Maybe they were different problems, but there's always been issues. And maybe also, because in a lot of ways, we're still in the wilderness, aren't we? We're still waiting till we get to that safe kingdom even Christians in America, strangely, I've heard a few that are a little stressed about the upcoming election. I hear people being stressed about gun violence in the streets. I hear people being stressed because they know we're not where we're supposed to be as a nation or as a species. And sometimes if we say, I feel stressed, I feel abandoned, I feel lost, I don't know what's going to go on, sometimes Fully tacitly, we can go, and where is God in all of this? Which is why by the time you get to chapter 3, the writer of Hebrews says, chapter 3, 13, I want you to encourage one another daily. As long as it's called today, just in the days that end in day. As long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness, because it's going to lie to you. It's going to twist you in all sorts of different directions, and not the least of which is to say, you know what? It's okay. It's okay. It's no big deal. That thing, that's no big deal. When God is going, actually, that's a sin. It's a toxic sin. It's destructive. It's fine. As long as enough of us say it's fine, then it's fine. Or the flip side of that. <gasps> be afraid. Be very afraid. It's all, it's hopeless. The world is going to hell in a handbasket. And God goes, it, it's always been messed up since you ate the fruit. You guys have screwed the whole thing up. I, but I'm always here with you. And I'm walking with you. It's never hopeless. But those are twin lies from sin. Oh, it's okay. No, nothing will ever be okay again. Somewhere in between that is, that's so wrong. Let's do something about that. Praise God, we can. In God's strength, we can. We have come to share in Christ, the writer says, if, if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. Just hold on. Just hold on. Don't let go when things are hard. Don't let go when the world says it's passe or it's tacky or it's offensive or I don't like it or you're ignorant if you believe that. Just hold on. Hold on to what Christ taught us. Hold on to what Christ promised us. 
have confidence that he's walking through all of this right there with us, in the midst of it, with us. Sometimes that's easier to see than other times. There's a whole poem about footprints, but he's always walking with you. Okay, but you're, you're sitting in Hebrews 10, because I told you to go to Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, since we have confidence not based on what we've done, not based on how good our religioning is, we jump through all the right hoops, all the right ways, but a confidence built on confidence in Jesus. Because back in 14, he says, by one sacrifice, Jesus, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Our confidence is built on his work, not ours. He's perfected us. He's completed us once and for all. And now, day by day, he's working in us to set us more and more spiritually apart for himself. He's doing, he's doing all the heavy lifting. He perfected us. He completed us. He changed us. He is making us holy. And he's like, what, all you've got to do is like, keep in step. Hold on. Just walk with me in this. Our preacher even quotes Jeremiah 31. He says, this is the covenant I will make with them, God says. After that time, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. And then he adds from Jeremiah 31, 34, the next verse, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. Which doesn't mean that God literally forgets them. He's not forgetful. It's it's ancient history. He's like, I choose not to bring this up. There's no reason to bring this up. You don't bring it up, I don't need to bring it up. Therefore, verse 19, Brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, since he died to purchase us the right to be in the presence of God, in the holy presence of God, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way, not not another dead bull, not another bleeding goat, but a living God who died and didn't stay dead. Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is his body. Not a big, thick, frightened curtain that separated everybody from the holy and holies so that you don't ever have to worry about accidentally being in the presence of God. This is a curtain that tore itself into a Messiah who was willing to be torn apart to bring us into his presence so that we're always in God's presence. which is an interesting concept. Because sometimes when we come into the sanctuary, what does sanctuary mean? It means holy place, right? Sometimes we go, oh, you can't talk like that in a church building. It's a holy place and God is suddenly listening. Oh, we're here in the sanctuary. This is a holy place. It means you need to act differently because this place is holy. And you go, we're always in a holy place. Now, this is a set-apart place for specific action. But when you're talking about holiness as in make sure that what you are doing is God-honoring, you're always in a holy place. If you're a Christian, you're always in the presence of a holy God, aren't you? If it's wrong to do in a church building, it's wrong to do, period, don't do that. You're always in God's holy presence. But I love this. Since, since you've got that kind of con- confidence and since we have a great priest over the house of God who understands the human condition better than we ever could, he just never fell victim to its worst elements. Let us. Here's our first lettuce. Because this is a sermon about lettuce and I haven't talked about it yet. Lettuce. All this is preface for the lettuce. Let us. 
draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. That is not a suggestion. It's a command, right? It's a command. Draw. Me too, the preacher says. Let all of us. We need to draw near to God. We need to come into his presence. We need to be close to him with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, full assurance that you know that God loves you. He's omniscient. He knows every flaw, every sin, every shortcoming, and has actively said, I choose not to dwell on that. I choose not to remember that. I've paid for that. Let's move past that. I look at you and I see a beloved child that I want to be in my presence. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having a heart sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, not with the, the blood of our sacrifice, our sacrifice, like they did back in Exodus 24, but sprinkled with the blood of his sacrifice. It's not a sacrifice that covers over our sins until the next Yom Kippur. It's not a sacrifice that we say, well, I hope this covers this, and man, I hope I don't mess this up like immediately. It's not just covering over our sins until the next time. His sacrifice washes the sins away. It's not just a balanced payment in the checkbook. It's Christ taking the checkbook and tossing it into a big bucket of his blood and saying, I think it's covered now. I think it's covered now. Every page soaked in my blood, I think it's covered now. So let's draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, having our bodies washed with pure water. Don't ever stutter step walking into God's presence, feeling in God's presence. Don't do it timidly. Don't do it where you go, I just don't know if I belong here. There's only two rational responses to being in the presence of God, and timidity is not one of them. That is irrational. There are only two rational ways to look at it. You should be utterly and rightly terrified to fall into the hands of a righteous and holy God that you have thumbed your nose at and said, I am going to disregard you. That should be utterly terrifying. Not something you go, I just don't know. Like, oh no, fall on your face saying, I am, woe is me, I'm unclean lips, I'm mess up, don't look at me, don't look at me. Second option, to be joyous and comforted that you have fallen into the open arms of a righteous and holy God who says, I love you. Even when you were sinning actively, loved you enough to die for you, how much more do you think I'm going to be affectionate toward you since you're my child? Is there ever part of that where timid stutter-stepping makes sense? You belong there, or you don't. You are in right relationship with the Lord. That could be righter, let's be honest. Or you have no relationship with the Lord. There's no dimmer switch. Don't be afraid. Be terrified. Or be comforted. If you know the Lord, if he's washed you clean, if he's reached into your soul and taken out all the gunk, if he's taken that checkbook and thrown into a bucket of his blood, don't ever be afraid of him. Don't ever worry about whether or not he loves you. Come with full assurance of faith. 
because you've been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. Don't ever diminish God's love for you by living or even worshiping as if his acceptance of you is dependent on how much you've gotten right. You're not right. You were so not right. You're probably still not right now. Just which side of the line are you on? And do that better. And he's right enough for both of us. Let us draw near to God with a timid heart and with the constant self-doubt that true faith demands. The mature Christian is timid about stepping into a holy place. Yes? Or is that the opposite of what the writer of Hebrews says? If you nodded when I read that wrongly, catch yourself. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, having our bodies washed with, clear, with pure water. We either are or we are not. There is no try. Yes, I quoted Yoda. And yes, that's the second movie line so far. Keep listening. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promises faithful. Second, let us. And this is a really short verse, but there's a lot in here. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. And it's awfully tempting for us to focus on that first little bit. Most people, to be honest, do. And then we see the rest of the verse as a commentary. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope. Because that's what we have to do. You have to be absolutely unswerving in your faith, right? Hebrews 3 said, Christ is faithful as the son of, uh, over the God's house, and we are his house, if, if. Indeed, we hold firmly to our, uh, to our confidence and the hope in which we find glory. That sounds pretty conditional. And, and then a little bit later in verse 12, he says, See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, like the Hebrews did back in the wilderness. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sinful, sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if, if, we hold firmly to the end, the confidence we had in first. And we could look at, we could look at verse 10.23 and say, yeah, that's exactly what he's saying here. 10.23, 3.6, You have to be complete and perfect in your faith or you will fry. Isn't that what it's saying? What are the parts that you see here? I mean, yes, there is a subjective obligation on our part to have faith, hold on to faith, not just fling it by the wayside, not trample God and his grace underfoot. Absolutely, you need to make a conscious decision. You need to make a decision to turn your life over to God. You need to make a decision to pick up your cross daily. You need to make a decision to be reading your Bible daily. You need to be making a decision to be praying continually. You need to make a decision to own it. Absolutely. But there's a more crucial bit to hear that sometimes we skip over. That's the subjective thing about you doing stuff. But there's this objective truth that it's God that's being faithful through the whole thing. How does Hebrews 3, 6 begin? Christ is faithful as the Son over God's house. How does Hebrews 10, 23 end? For he is who promised is faithful. So you should be faithful. And if I'm not, well, then you're really lucky he is. And he's working to help you with this. As important as your involvement is, and it is, 
You're simply taking your part and holding on to what God created, God initiated, God created you to be part of, God opened the way for you to be part of, God called you personally to be called part of it, he, God enables and equips you to be part of, having died to change your heart so that you could even able to be part of it. In all of this, it's so tempting to read Hebrews 10.23 and think it's all about us. I'd argue it's really all about God and his faithfulness. Like if I, I get to get this, if I can just hold on well enough. Ooh, I don't get to get this if I just don't hold on quite well enough. In both those extremes, we forget that it's God that's doing all the work. And he's like, I'm just calling you to hold on to what I've already done in you, what I'm doing in you. Hold on. I love how Paul approaches this. Stay in Hebrews. But in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, God will keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with the Son, Jesus Christ. Yeah, you're, you're right. You need to be doing stuff, but God's the faithful one here. To the Thessalonians, Paul wrote, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you, make you holy through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. In both those sets, he's saying God will keep you blameless, not you will keep you blameless. So hold on to that. Be good, be right, follow God, absolutely. But don't ever pretend that it's your work that's doing it. His promise is solid. Let us hold, back in Hebrews, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Which means there's actually a third bit there. Let's hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Can you just nestle in and quietly be a Christian by yourself? Sit in your basement being right while everybody else burns and you go, should have gotten it right, never really did like you. Remember, back in the other part where he's talking about God's faithfulness and that you better do this and it's conditional, he said, encourage one another daily as long as it's called today. This is cohortative, right? We've got to do this together. Nobody ever said that this is an individual thing that you've got to do on your own. You're designed to be living out your faith actively in community, in transparency, as active encouragers to our brothers and sisters in this lost world and active ambassadors to the lost world itself. Actually, you know what? It's worse than that. It's worse than that because of grammar. Grammar. In the Greek, that word unswervingly isn't about you holding on to your hope. So for all those who go, yeah, it says I better unswervingly hold on to my hope. It's all about me unswervingly making sure I don't lose faith. Not what the Greek says. It's how unswervingly you hold on to your profession of your hope. A more accurate translation if you want to do it this way, more literal, be let us hold fast to the profession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Hold on to your sharing and living out the gospel unswervingly. Christians have a million reasons not to share our hope, not to share the gospel, not, not to make people uncomfortable by calling sin sinful, not to say, well, maybe I think you might have taken a wrong turn. You can come up with a million reasons why you're too young 
to share the gospel. You're too old to share the gospel. You're too isolated to share the gospel. You're never around non-Christians. You're too insulated. You don't know how to talk to them. You're too, I don't know what, too busy, too introverted, too... There's reasons why you have not unswervingly held on to professing your hope. But when we do that, we're throwing our lettuce away, aren't we? We're told, hold fast to professing our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Hold fast to your commitment to be an ambassador. Don't let yourself or others just excuse it away. Because let us, here's the third of our lettuces, is, is, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Not just holding fast to professing the gospel, but holding fast to living it out and helping other people to live it out. We need to be encouraging one another to be living this out. And depending on your translation, this is a thought that continues into two more lettuces in the very next verse. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. That's five separate lettuces, right? That's five different, ver- five different sermons I should do. Let us draw near to God. Let us hold fast to our profession of faith. Let us spur one another on to good deeds. Let us keep meeting together. Let us encourage one another. Yeah, that'll preach. That's good. Nothing wrong with that. Except for grammar. Quietly, this whole thing is about the grammar. Because that's not what the Greek says. It's not five separate lettuces. It's three lettuces. Let us draw near to God. Let us hold fast to our profession of faith. Let us spur one another on to good deeds. Because verses 24 and 25 are one sentence. And the grammar is that the rest of those verses are how you do the spurring on. They're commands, but they're how you do it. It's, um, again, the classic thing of how grammar changes things. Let's eat, comma, grandma. Let's eat, grandma. How important is the comma? Grandmas worldwide appreciate the comma. In this, technically, commands four and five are how you do command three. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up on meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. That's the grammar of it. Let us spur one another on. And, you know, not doing it this way, but this way. The emphasis is on specifically spurring one another on. What's interesting, even that's an interesting term. Every other usage in the Greek of the term spur is negative. It's a painful goad. Well, it's a spur. It's kicking the horse in the side with a sharp implement to make it do something. That's always presented negatively as this sharp, painful, annoying, irritating, provoking poke. And the writer of Hebrews goes, yeah. Let's figure out the best way to lovingly, quietly encourage one another. Cameron, let me encourage you. No, technically here it's, it's saying, no, nah, how do we kick each other in the sides and go, no, no, no. The painful immediate poke going, nope, we got to we, we, we do this right. So kick me in the side too. 
And even that, it's not even technically encouraging. The word there is more exhorting and imploring. It's, it's, not, it's not just, uh, let's be as warm and kind about our encouragement. It's going, it's going come on, seriously. Where is it? There it is. Come on, do it. Do, let's do what we're supposed to do. Let's figure out the best ways to poke, prod, otherwise provoke one another instead of just blindly giving up meeting like some do. Well, I mean, I'll show up when it's convenient. I mean, there's a football game today, and I'd really rather see kickoff. I mean, yes, I know I'd only miss the first five minutes, but it's kickoff, and you don't really understand the rest of the game if you didn't see the kickoff. Okay, it's not like a movie, but still, it's, kickoff is important. Or I don't really need to get together with everybody. I mean, I can pretty much do this on my own. My worship service is a is a solitary walk through the woods, and it's just the same as when I'm talking to everybody and learning things from other people and growing closer to the Lord in community. It's pretty much the same. No. Or instead of just blindly giving up, trying to make a difference like some Christians too often find ourselves doing. It's like, no. I want you to implore, exhort, kick each other in the shins lovingly, not judgingly. If you're spurring your horse because you don't like the horse, you're a bad horse owner. Stop it. But it is messy. He's like, I want you to get messy with each other. I want you to engage with one another on an emotional, personal, visceral, relational level. All the things that we as a good church in America should not do, right? A good church in America should be structured and controlled and keep everything at arm's distance. No, a good church in America should be vibrant and and excitingly encouraging and have a really, really awesome laser light show. No, a good church in America should be socially aware and active, and that's what we need to focus on, is changing this world and the social condition. of. As I read Hebrews, I think our preacher is calling us to be messily relational, to be focused on showing one another how to do it right in a loving, non-judgmental, but still kind of in-your-face sort of way. Like, you know, family. Can we, can we do that? And then caring enough to personally follow up by helping one another figure out how to do it and by saying, I would really appreciate it if you did the same for me. I think that's the biblical model for us. Because it was never intended to be a purely intellectual, structured exercise. It was never intended to be an entirely individual endeavor. It was never intended to be a fundamentally social experiment. It's never intended to be that. It's not about being right or about feeling good or about changing the world around us. At its core, being a Christian is about being washed clean and forgiven of sins by the God who sculpted us and who dearly loves us and remembering to continually live in an attitude of thankfulness for that. That's what it means to be a Christian. And if we are Christians, then we should want to make sure that we're doing that right. If we are Christians, we should feel positive and good about life. If we are Christians, we should want to be the tools that God uses to as he changes the world. We should want that, which means that at its core, living like a Christian is about consciously reflecting God's love, God's salvation, God's truth toward everyone around us. That's not what it means to be a Christian, but it should be what we do living as Christians. Being an embassy that actively points the world to Christ so that everyone can have what we have. Not hoarding it, but sharing it. You give away all of it, and you still have all of it. By definition, if we're doing that right, it's a messy business. It's messy. Not chaotic, not disorderly, but messy. In much the same way that a surgery is messy. Not chaotic, not disorderly, 
but messy. And for much the same reason, when you think about it, God is cutting down to the very marrow of people. God is hacking parts off, saying this should never have been there in the first place. Let me get down to this, and it's going to be bloody, and it's going to be messy, and I'm going to cover you with my blood. If you try to sanitize that, you miss it. And he says, I want you guys to be my scalpels that I use to do this. God help us if we ever go, ha ha, I get to cut anybody I want. Have you ever seen Christians that do that? Let me slice you and feel righteous. But God help us if we ever just leave the scalpel in the drawer and look at the person with the tumor and go, yeah, maybe another scalpel will show up. It's messy. Not disorderly, not chaotic, but messy. If we're holding God at arm's distance, we're doing something wrong. If we're holding other Christians at arm's distance, the writer says we're doing something wrong. If if we're holding your spouse or your children or your neighbor or your pastor or your enemy or that stranger at arm's distance to protect yourself, you're doing it wrong. And I don't say that to be malicious. I don't say that to be judgmental. I say that to be biblical. He's saying, no, I, I need you to get in there. Because you were never designed to avoid grass stains. You're going to get messy for the kingdom of God. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that that means that we should be imprudent or unsafe. I'm not saying that. I, I'm, I'm just saying to be in there, to be engaged, to trust God to protect us, to, to share and be excited to share, to be open, to be honest with everyone that God brings us into our lives. Stop and think of what, what a witness it would be if, if we lived, every Christian lived every day like Scrooge lived Christmas morning. Bouncing off the walls going, this is so awesome. Let me just love everybody, even the people I've mistreated. Let me tell them I've changed and I want to tell you how awesome this is. What if every Christian lived every day like that? Why don't we? I don't. You don't. Because we get so lost in thinking like this that the writer of Hebrews has to go, no, 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 no. Let us stop doing that. Let us stop doing that. Let us draw near to God with assurance. Let us keep professing our faith and hold unswervingly to professing our faith. Let us do this in a way that spurs one another on to do this more. Let us keep doing this in a healthy sort of loving sort of way because we appreciate so much all that Christ has done to bring us so warmly and so openly into the presence of God where God says, this is where I wanted you all along. This is where I've always wanted you. And let's do that all the more as we see the day approaching because there will come a day where there isn't a next day, right? On this earth. There will come a day where there isn't a tomorrow. Just a forever Tomorrow, nope, forever starts here. There's a whole new default. You can't leave this for tomorrow because there's no guarantee that today isn't the day that has no tomorrow. Can't guarantee it's not the day that you have no tomorrow. I can't guarantee I'm going to make it all the way home. I might not have a tomorrow. Not being nihilistic, I'm not being maudlin, I'm not being depressed. It's logic. There will be a day that is my last day to do this. I don't know when that day is. Rationally, 
so long as it's called today, why don't I do this? I'm going to cheat. You're in chapter 10, chapter 12, one more lettuce, two more lettuces, a couple more lettuces. Chapter 12, verse 1, let us throw off everything that hinders the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter, the initiating source, the active completion of our faith. How about all the things that we go, well, I don't know, but I don't know. Yeah, but this, how about we just, enough. How about enough? It may not be easy, but it is relatively simple. How, do, how about we just don't do that? And let's just run the race we're supposed to run because we focus on Christ, not the weeds, not the waves, not the wind, Christ. Not with furrowed brows and pointing out, you have to do better. Oh. No. Both the gentle, come on. Let's all do this. Let's all do this. Let's give each other that exhortation, that cohortative exhortation to do something that includes us, that's a command that says we all need to do this. Bear in mind, everything I'm calling you to do, everything the writer of Hebrews is calling you to do, everything that the Bible is calling you to do, you only have to do today. On any day that's today. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you that this isn't up to us. This isn't our strength. This isn't our ability to bring it about. This isn't something we beat each other up about. This is something we might need to poke each other about. But even then, it's a poke that says, please poke me. I pray that in all of this, let us build all of this on the appreciation of what we have in you and the confidence that we have in you that what we have is so good, so much better, so much richer, so much deeper. What an amazing embassy that we can live out every day. Let us unswervingly hold on to that ability to be that ambassador. Let us glorify you in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.